You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. Hello, we're back on the Oz Network for another one of our long string of spring movie reviews. Uh, as I've been going through several of them by myself, several of them with Ben, with Jamie, with others. But this is another one I'm going to be by myself because appropriately it is Ready Player One and this is Ready Host One. Uh, couldn't convince anybody to see another movie with me, so you have to listen to me for about 20, 30 minutes. Go on on about a bunch of 80s pop culture references. My name is Colin, and I'm dead. I've hidden an Easter egg somewhere in this review. Ready Player One, which is, of course, like by far the number one movie uh, in the world right now. Some people considering it a big comeback for Steven Spielberg. Uh, some people considering it another one in a long line of Spielberg I guess close to hits, um, close to satisfying movies. Uh, I don't know. I'm still somewhere in the middle on this. A lot of things I liked about it, a lot of things that I didn't quite get. Uh, Overall, I guess I could just start off by saying, I mean, I I thought this movie was, for the most part, incredibly entertaining, way more entertaining than I thought it would be. I wasn't really sure what I was getting, uh, you know, based on the trailers, it looked cool, but based on... A long line of history. You can kind of see where I am on, uh, I guess, the uh, the, the uh, success of Spielberg over the last 15 years. But I kind of look at it as a long line of fairly disappointing movies. Spielberg's done pretty much everything since Minority Report and Cash Me If You Can, which came out in 2002. You know, Ben and I went through this on our post episode. It's you get a couple that you know were like, okay, well, that was fairly entertaining, but you know, not a perfect movie like Munich. Um, like uh, Tintin I thought was great but you know not again not a perfect movie some that I thought were terrible like Lincoln and War Horse uh, Bridge of Spies I was not a fan of and some that were like yeah that was decent like The Post um, but this one I, I, I will go as far as to say that this is by far the most entertaining movie he's had since Indiana Jones and the King of the Crystal Skull as everybody out there is just groaning and rolling their eyes right now for what it was, Indiana Jones and the Cayman Crystal Skull was an entertaining movie. Again, it wasn't a perfect movie. Uh, had a lot of the same flaws as this one, but it was still an entertaining movie. But all around, I'd say this one probably slightly better, and I'd go as far to say maybe the most entertaining Spielberg movie I've seen since Capture Me If You Can, which was 2002. So we're looking at over 15 years. Uh, but the movie's based on a book uh, written by Ernest Klein, who was brought on to write the screenplay. And from what I understand, I mean... The basic story is the same, but so much has just been changed from it. Uh, and also, Ernest Klein didn't write it himself. He wrote along with Zach Penn, who, you know, uh, I guess is most well-known for doing the X-Men movies. But um, I guess the plot of the book is <laughs> uh, a throwback to 80s pop culture references. I mean, it's it's a world in the future where people just live in virtual reality. I mean, a lot of the things this movie nails are just the, the things that uh, I guess are very common in pop culture today uh things like online gaming and uh um obviously vr and everything and it it combines it with a lot of these 80s 90s pop culture references uh which kind of don't make sense in the movie because you're living in this futuristic world and we're living in a world now where i guess young people this movie is following very young people for the most part you do in this world you do get that everybody including you know adults grandparents uh owners of corporations they all just live in this oasis all the time uh which is kind of cool because it's it's basically the internet has now evolved into a worldwide online game and there are a million games within the game but you enter this oasis and you know you just you travel around you can play this game you can play that game but you're always interacting with other people 
and uh, the, the 80s reference again just <laughs> first complaint which really has nothing to do with the movie is that it does not seem believable that uh, everybody who's you know under the age of 50 I guess at the time this movie comes out which is like 2000 or the time the plot takes place 2045 is going to understand references to things like Buckaroo Banzai across the 8th dimension or uh, even something like Alien um, you know Back to the Future the Iron Giant uh, it, it kind of is it, these things are in there for the audience and uh, as much as I think there are things that really work about this movie I do have to say um, as, as I did see this by myself I did run into some friends at the, the movie theater uh, just before it started and then after it ended I came over and talked to them and we were all like yeah that was a really great movie but then we just progressed to talk for about 10 minutes about did you catch the moment where you see Robocop on screen you know and how about that moment where uh, you see the, the the references to Alien and uh, you know what about the, the Michael Jackson reference they throw in there and Lost in Space so for the most part, this movie, I think, will ultimately be remembered for all those little Easter eggs that they hide in here. Uh, and some of them not even completely hidden. Like, the DeLorean plays a huge part in this movie. Uh, it's the main vehicle of the main character. You know, and then, uh, obviously, the Iron Giant plays a, a part in the story and everything else. And a lot of the stuff are just little cameos thrown in there. But you get references to things like there's uh, a gadget called the Zemeckis Cube, which... You're going to get uh, uh, another kind of Back to the Future type reference and all that. But, I mean, these are the things I think most people are going to walk away from the movie enjoying and wanting to watch it again. Uh, having said that, especially the first two-thirds of this movie, it is a lot of fun. And this Oasis, I, I believe, is way more entertaining to watch than you know going to Pandora and Avatar. And I think this movie is going to get a lot of comparisons to Avatar, even though it's way more in line with Tron, which is a movie that's now, I think, 35 years old, which that was the even stranger thing, that for a movie that basically is just, I would say, at least a 50% ripoff of Tron, uh, there isn't a single Tron reference that I caught in the movie. Um, but then, you know, obviously Avatar itself, you know, very inspired by Tron as well, you know, just th this idea of a main character living in a digital world as uh, kind of, you know, a, a gamer uh, character and avatar so their own fictionalized game character and um, that's one of the things that uh, along with playing on a lot of the modern things like VR and online gaming and everything that I really liked was the idea that the, the when they go into the oasis the characters they have for themselves are like the exact opposite they don't go so far that it's not like you're seeing you know the kids from Stranger Things and then they go in there and they look like the rock it's it's not so much like that it's you know just maybe the lead character, uh, you're getting a much cooler version of himself, uh, you know, more well-dressed, you know, a, a better overall look. You know, the, the female lead, uh, you, throughout the course of the movie, you start to get that all of these characters that you get introduced in the Oasis, on the real world, there's something that's, you know, maybe a little bit off and a little bit uh, lacking confidence with them or uh, maybe some type of physical uh, abnormality that would make them, I guess, stand out or, or uh, not really fit in in society. And that's something that they don't play so over the top with this. All the characters, as you do meet them, is sort of like, oh, that's not really what I expected. Oh, this one's different. Oh, this one's like 11 years old. I didn't get that. And just so on, so on. But when they're in the Oasis, it's not like these characters are super confident all of a sudden. I mean, when you hear them talk, it's really cool because you're seeing you know these really powerful looking superhero characters and then they just start babbling and rambling and and sounding kind of awkward and the movie's not playing up so much like the way stranger things does where the characters are like you know ultra uh i guess geeky here it's more just a little bit socially awkward 
And uh, they do a good job with that, which is strange to say that I'm giving a lot of credit for how they play these characters because at the same time, one of the things about this movie that doesn't really work is that there's really no character development at all. So you don't care about any of these characters by the time the movie's over. Uh, you know, I'd go as far as to say that, if anything, I feel like it starts to hold back the movie when the movie has a long running time. It's, you know, uh, I think two hours, 15, two hours, 20 minutes. And it starts to feel like, you know, I'm just kind of done with these characters at this point. You know, I, I, give me somebody new. I'm, I'm okay with just revamping this movie and give me somebody new. You know, uh, one actor, Ben Mendelsohn, who, of course, played the main villain in Rogue One and also gave one of the greatest performances in TV history in a show called Bloodline that he did. Uh, and an Australian actor for the Australian listeners. But Ben Mendelsohn, I mean, he really makes the most out of kind of a bland, uh, pretty generic villain character. But that's because he's great. He's Ben Mendelsohn. But for some of these other actors, like the the lead actor, Ty Sheridan, who um, most people recognize from the most recent X-Men movie, X-Men Apocalypse, and soon X-Men Dark's Phoenix, he, he plays the new Cyclops in that. Uh, I'm not being critical of him. I just feel like in this movie, he doesn't really stand out. You know, the character isn't really compelling. You're not really that interested in him. And I guess just as evidence that I don't think that's Ty Sheridan lacking charisma or anything, uh, if you go back to some of his earlier movies, uh, there's a movie he made called Mud with Matthew McConaughey, which he gives a fantastic performance in Tree of Life, which uh, you know he made with... Um, Terrence Malick, that was about five, six years ago. Then we got nominated for Best Picture. And again, you know, for a supporting role, incredible performance. And he kind of started out doing these indie movies as a teenager. And now he's very quickly evolving into this, I guess, 19-year-old blockbuster actor. And I don't know if he quite fits it yet, but I guess what he does have going for him is that he's likable. You don't hate him. Um, the, the better one, I guess, of these young hero characters would be the female lead Artemis which is played by Olivia Cook who uh, I originally saw in like a horror movie called The Quiet Ones where she played just a completely insane character and thought she was great and then more recently she's on what was one of my favorite shows on TV Bates Motel playing the polar opposite character from this movie as well and I think if anybody really steps up and has a couple of moments in this movie you're like wow they could be a star it would be her uh, but you're not that interested in most of these young characters and when they do introduce, I guess, the real-world versions of them, you're slightly more interested. But this movie spends a lot of time in the Oasis. I mean, you watch the trailers, and it looks like it's kind of 50-50. And this isn't like Tron, where when you're, you know, uh, when you're in the Tron world, you're still watching Jeff Bridges in the Tron world. You're watching Garrett Hedlund in the Tron world. Here, you're watching CGI versions of these characters. I mean, I would go as far as to say is there's probably going to be an argument made and it'll have to come down to whatever technicality on the Academy Awards, whether this movie qualifies as a live action movie or an animated movie, because I would argue that probably more than 50%, maybe even close to 60, 70% of this movie is fully animated. Uh, and the animation does work. And I guess another compliment I can give the movie just visually is that it's probably the best use of CGI I've seen, uh, not CGI, the best use of 3D I've seen since uh, maybe Man of Steel, was the last time where there was really a 3D movie that that really used the 3D effect to its advantage, where it, it wasn't just a couple of objects jumping at the screen, or, uh, oh, if you remove your glasses, now you can tell it was in 3D. I mean, uh, I, if you go back to, like, Avatar, uh, when Avatar did it, when um, uh, the, the Polar Express, that, when Robert Zemeckis started doing the Polar Express, Beowulf, and Christmas Carol, those movies, like the 3D effect, it, it really was used to get your attention. And nowadays... Every movie that's like over you know a hundred million dollars in budget just has 3D just for the sake of having it. It doesn't always work. 
you know, sometimes you get a couple little effects that are cool here and there. You know, Tron Legacy might have been the last one that really went out of its way where it's like it belonged in like a 3D world. And I think this is one of those ones that Spielberg probably learned a lot from doing the, the Tintin uh, motion capture movie he did years ago because I thought he did a pretty decent job with the 3D in that as well. And here, I mean, it feels like I, I would have to get this on 3D and, you know, whether I love this movie enough to buy it or not, I mean, if I ever were to own this movie, uh, I would make sure to get the 3D version because I don't think there's any other way to watch this. Like, you have to see it in 3D because the 3D is just unbelievable in this. It, it makes the movie, and I think that's the only way that you could really accept watching animated versions of lead characters in an animated world for 60 70% of a movie is that you have to kind of feel like you're in that world. And uh, you know, there, there's tons of little references, as uh, I said earlier, where uh, you're you're probably not going to catch them as much as if this movie weren't in 3D, because obviously with a 3D effect, I mean, you're only going to be able to focus on so much. It, it seems weird, but the things that are uh, more in the foreground, you're going to focus on more. And then also because the screen's darker, you don't catch as much. But I would figure if you did have a chance to see it in 2D, you might catch more of the little things in the background. Um, so... I guess last thing to really talk about is just the story. And I, I think this is where I do have a bit of an issue with the movie, uh, even though I really did enjoy it because I thought that the first two acts of this movie, like I was going as far as to say, like not only am I enjoying this movie, this is probably the most fun I've had seeing anything in, I don't know, since maybe John Wick 2 a year ago, where I just thought like this movie is amazing. Like I love this. You know, I can't wait to watch this again. And then the third act comes and this is kind of, similar i've had a hard time trying to explain to people because most people don't remember it but the movie that came out a couple of years ago called tomorrowland that had uh, george clooney in it and um it was i i guess in that way it was kind of a throwback to like more 1950s 1960s sci-fi uh and also was featuring you know this alternate reality world uh th this other dimension world where people could go and it was all this weird technology and everything and i felt like the two first two thirds of tomorrowland was just fantastic and then all of a sudden they got to Tomorrowland and when you get there it just feels so disappointing and it just turns into such a run-of-the-mill generic special effects blockbuster movie that you kind of lose interest so two-thirds of the way into this movie I'm loving every second of it and I can't wait to see what's still to come and then the third act comes where they go from what's a pretty decent like prison break sequence to what you see a lot of in the trailers which is just this massive battle this this you know, uh, assault on a fortress with maybe a million different video game type characters and the Iron Giant there and DeLorean and all that. And it's just this huge, insane battle. And it just feels like it's way too much. And I guess from that prison break sequence, which was pretty good, uh, and then leading into this and then the other part of the climax, the entire climax of this movie is like an hour long. It's It's an hour long third act. It just became too much and it just, it felt so ordinary. And it's still fun, it's still entertaining, but I think the bar was set so high with the first two acts with kind of an interesting story in this incredible world where you're seeing so many different things. And it wasn't just what I expected, which would be every five minutes, here's another throwback to an 80s movie. Uh, it, those things kind of just float around in the background. You get, you know, King Kong plays a, a big part in it, the DeLorean plays a big part. Uh, they get references here or there, but it really is just, you know, it's sort of its own world and it doesn't rely on it more than just for gimmicks and cameos and easter eggs really but that third act it just i don't know something just i started to fall asleep and i've talked on the show that there are a lot of uh boring movies i've seen and i almost can never fall asleep to a movie 
And I started to drift off at points during that big battle. And that's the last point in the movie you should be drifting off. It's just there was nothing compelling about it. And uh, it improves a little bit as the climax progresses where they throw some cool twists there. But nothing felt special there. And I think that's where the movie struggles. So although I you know, am definitely disappointed and kind of let down by the third act of this movie, I thought the first two-thirds was just amazing. The, the main sequence, the big race sequence we see, which in the trailers, you see a lot of the DeLorean and King Kong in there. That alone, I mean, that's going to, you know, stand the test of time. I think that's going to be something 20 years from now, people are going to be like, yeah, well, uh, how, how amazing was the race scene in Ready Player One? And you know, a lot of the technology you get to see, like, I found, I almost found it more interesting with the real world stuff when you get to see how these people would enter the oasis it's not just you put on a set of glasses you know you're fully interacting with an environment so the lead character goes into a van uh that has like almost like a treadmill on it that you could run in any direction and then it's also about you know you're moving so you have to move along with whatever you're doing in the oasis and uh you can go even further that depending on how much money you have you can get a suit where you can feel things in the oasis whereas a regular poorer person they're kind of interacting maybe with gloves, but nothing else. And, you know, all that real world stuff was really interesting to me. But that also leads to another issue I think the movie has, which is that it exists too much just within its characters' worlds that it doesn't take into account, like, things that should seem like logic in the, the, the outside. The movie starts by setting up the world and saying things like, you know, that there was, uh, you know, all these world problems or I don't know if it was saying wars. They mentioned like a bandwidth riot or something like that where you're really seeing like this is where the world probably could go. But it's like this slightly futuristic world, maybe 30 years in the future, and everybody's poor and it's just all about this video game world. Okay, that makes sense. But when you have the main villain, which is basically uh, an evil corporation that is trying to uh, beat the the teenage kids in this video game world to these keys that will give them control over the giant company that is like the Microsoft or the Apple uh, or kind of a Microsoft combined with Apple uh, of the future that basically controls everything. It's the one profitable company in the world. You know, yeah, it's all for the control of that, but this evil corporation just does things where you're like, where are the police in all this? And I started to, I guess, accept it by the end of the movie that, well, maybe they just live in a world where police have no authority anymore. And then all of a sudden, at one point in the movie, the police just show up and they start arresting people. And you're like, the police should have been here. Like, there should have been a reference to it earlier on. It, it just, there's a lot of things where just logic doesn't apply to the movie where it kind of took me out of it a little bit. But again, I don't want to sound too down on it because the movie was so much fun. It's kind of like Pacific Rim last week. You know, I said with Pacific Rim last week, uh, yeah, the movie has its problems. Yeah, there are sections of this where it's way too slow and they should have done something differently. But what's entertaining about it is just so entertaining, it's worth seeing. So uh, going ahead with the final review on this one, is this one going to be a buy it? Is it going to be a rent it? Is it going to be a bin it? I'm really kind of tossing and turning on this one because I, I would have been fully behind this as a buy it for the first two thirds of the movie. Um, but the last act really just, I, I feel just, it just, it wasn't impressive in any way. And it kind of fell apart a little bit for me. So it was the opposite, I guess, with Pacific Rim, where I felt like maybe the middle act of the movie is what fell apart. And arguably, the good stuff in Ready Player One is better than the good stuff in Pacific Rim. But I felt like Pacific Rim ended stronger, and the movie needs to work towards how it ends. And this just sort of felt like, you know, they weren't sure how to end this movie, and you know, they knew that they couldn't do a lot of the stuff that was in the book. They needed to update certain things. They didn't have rights to certain things. They needed something that was bigger, more exciting, and... It just it feels like it's pieced together from a million other movies and it just lost such its originality. So 
I think ending a movie stronger is more important than, you know, maintaining a strong middle section. So I bought Pacific Rim last week. I'm going to rent this one. Although I will say the entertaining stuff of this much stronger. It's just, it really loses you for the last hour. So the first half of this, I guess, is really something extraordinary. But even though I'd say I'd consider this a rented movie, if you have the chance to see it in 3D, like see it in 3D, just because the 3D is, it's it's so good. It, it, it's, it, it's arguably the first movie, as I said in years, that really understood the purpose of 3D and is using it in a way where it's not about you know, oh, I see this object jumping out at me. It's it, that you feel like you are inside the world. And a lot of that has to do just with the, the smart decision that Spielberg made to film this from the point of view of certain characters. So it's not just, oh, I'm seeing this environment and here comes, you know, uh, the claw of King Kong right at the screen. It's that when a character is just walking through a crowd in the Oasis, you're seeing it from their point of view. And that kind of stuff really makes a difference when it comes to 3D. So Definitely check it out if you have a chance, but ultimately I'd say rent it. A bit of a miss in some areas for Ready Player One. Uh, wrapping this one up, I've still been teasing. There's Seven Days in Entebbe, which is a very small movie that uh, I want people to listen to the review for because uh, I think it's a movie worth checking out, uh, and a story worth researching. Uh, and uh, there might, I'm not even going to tease it because then I'm going to feel obligated to cover it if I don't have time. But uh, at least one more movie that I'm getting ready to see probably within the next half hour. <laughs> so I'm going to have to rush and finish this one up. Uh, but maybe another review for that one after uh, uh, a couple of days here. Uh, other than that, for movies, we will be starting with The Avengers. I need to look at my date here. So uh, the first Avengers movie, uh, I guess that's going up in the next seven days maybe. Uh, so you'll be hearing it probably either this weekend or early to mid next week. And then following that, we'll do Age of Ultron, and then we'll do our preview where we talk about all the movies. So a lot to come, plus the regular things, uh, Nip Tuck, Survivor, Third Watch, Lost, and RuPaul's Drag Race. All that stuff going on and more. Uh, so we'll hopefully be back here for another review in a little bit, or I'll be back there for another review because it is Ready Podcaster 1 here. Um, but that is it for this week, uh, this review, this four days, however long it's been since, uh, I did the Pacific Rim episode. My name is Colin and I also like dressing as Buckaroo Bonsai. Thank you for listening to the Oz Network. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your speakers every week. For more information, hit us up at theoznetwork.net.